0: Hello and welcome to the VJ Hemong podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. We were thrilled to welcome the experts in a discussion on the latest developments in the field of multiple myeloma. Our speakers discuss the management of smoldering myeloma, transplant eligible patients, MRD evaluation and relapse refractory multiple myeloma. Sharing this discussion is Mohamed Moti of St. Antoine Hospital. He's joined by Francesca Gay of the University of Turin and Sadusmani money of Levine Cancer Institute and Atrium Health.
1: Hi, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to this uh, first myeloma session on the video journal of HIM ONC. Uh, Today, I'm uh, very privileged uh, because I'm joined by two wonderful friends and colleagues. Uh, Ladies first, Dr. Francesca Gay from the University of Torino. Let's talk it in the Italian way. Uh, And by Dr. Sadusmani from the Levine Cancer Institute and the Atrium Health uh, in Charlotte, Uh, in the United States. As you know, I think over the last few weeks, we have witnessed an amazing uh, amount of new information in the field of multiple myeloma. Uh, I'm 100% convinced that we uh, can spend the full day uh, trying to summarize all the available new research evidence. However, uh, for uh, today, uh, we will try uh, to structure this into, I would say, four topics that I personally believe, and I hope my uh, panelists would agree with me, uh, into four major topics. Uh, One about smoldering multiple myeloma, which is really becoming a matter of concern these days, because. Uh, probably will have to treat these patient. Then the transplant eligible patient, where things are moving quickly, uh, especially when it comes to uh, induction regimens. This will obviously lead us to the evaluation of minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease, and it's a true value uh, not only in terms of a prognostic impact, but maybe to drive and guide the therapy of our patient. And finally, the fourth topic, until we find a cure to everybody, we'll still have to deal with the relapse refractory uh, myeloma patient. And here, uh, we do have some very, very good news about new agents, new combinations, cellular therapy, uh, T-cell engagers. And we'll hear some very nice data. So, uh, Francesca, Sad, welcome.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you. It's
2: a pleasure to be here. Thank,
1: Thank you. you for joining. So, let me start first by the management of high risk smoldering multiple myeloma. Uh, and my short, simple question, and let's start with the ladies, Francesca. Uh, What's your, I would say, feeling today about this topic based on what we heard recently uh, from different groups?
3: Well, I think that uh, if you think about curing someone in myeloma, probably the tricky point is to define those patients who have this high risk disease but that uh, did not develop yet uh, the crops so where you can treat early probably you can have a disease that is more sensitive to therapy than later on where the disease is more aggressive. So then uh, I think that in principle, if you identify those patients who are really at a high risk of developing asymptomatic disease and you treat them with a proper therapy at the time uh, where the disease is still asymptomatic, then you probably have found your the, the small population of patients that could be cured. So the, the first question, I think, is uh, who are those patients that are really at high risk? Uh, we have seen several definitions in the, com- in the last years uh, from the myeloma-defining events, slim crab, that actually are what we first defined as moldering, to the most uh, recent definitions, the, the 2020 definition, for example. So I I, I honestly, I don't know who are really these patients who are going to become symptomatic. There are several criteria and probably most of them are, are, are valid, but this is tricky. To, to, for the research now to identify correctly this patient. And the other point is what is the correct treatment approach. So you can have two philosophies. One is treat and cure. So give them everything and use the high-dose therapy. The other one is just control the disease. To my opinion, I would honestly be more in favor of a more aggressive approach is possible in an attempt to cure the disease and to give treatment-free interval in this population. But this is just a personal opinion, and I'm curious about what uh, Saad and you think about it.
1: No, I, 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 I think, uh, uh, and Saad will confirm or not, uh, we are all on the same line, and we believe that in hematology, Uh, You win when you intervene early. And we also know in oncology in general uh, that you would try to detect the so called in situ carcinoma. And this is why we do breast cancer screening and we encourage uh, all uh, patients and all uh, healthy people, whenever they have a risk uh, factor related to family or age, to go into these screenings. Then one would wonder philosophically why in multiple myeloma uh, this should be different. I mean, uh, I have rarely heard that uh, you would wait uh, until acute leukemia uh, before treating uh, an MDS, you know, a high risk MDS. Yeah. But now, my question to you, Sad, how confident do you feel about our capacity? Uh, to detect or categorize these so-called high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma, because this is a key issue.
2: I think that this this has been um, a, a key issue for for a long time. But uh, the International Myeloma Working Group uh, has recently taken a look at over uh, twelve hundred patients with smoldering myeloma and came up with uh, the twenty to twenty criteria, uh, which is essentially. Um, an improvement on the previous clinical feature criteria. So, you know, patients who have, um, you know, 20% or more plasma cytosis on the bone marrow, two grams or more of M-spike, and um, um, normal to have, uh, sorry, a normal, to normal light chain ratio of 20 or more, um, you know, those are identified um, as, as uh, you know, high-risk features, um, and, and they characterize the, the high-risk smoldering myeloma patients which in fact is also the category of patients who benefited in the eco trial the most um, you know when when was given compared to observation you know the, the sagoloniaal study um, that was presented uh, last year and it, and it's published now but but that group is is the one that that derived the most benefit um, i'm still a little bit on the fence that that is the final answer because you know again we are, we are only relying on burden of disease we are not paying attention to disease biology or or to what's happening to the immune microenvironment um, in those patients i think um, our, our best guess is still um, you know we we can you know uh, give a 50 50 chance uh, of identifying high risk small ring myeloma patients i think you know when when we account for biology and, and immune repertoire we can potentially get that to 100% but we're not there yet so, so that's the other challenge. You know, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence, and this is where the ECOG study, um, you know, poses a challenge for me personally when I'm sitting down with younger patients uh, with high-risk smoldering myeloma and having discussion. Yes, you intervene, but just like Francesca said, you know, you would like to intervene with, you know, like it's active myeloma, like you're trying to push for cure. And right now, we don't have any data to support that.
1: So uh, should I understand that uh, Francesca has given us a sort, like we can go into two directions, either a sort of uh, an early uh, treatment, but a mild gentle treatment to delay disease progression, or either a very intensive curative treatment to eradicate the disease. And probably the truth is in between. But what would be your current approach if, so because we have the ECOG trial published in JCO, you mentioned, very nice randomized trial. We do have also very nice trials from Dr. Mateos from Spain, different philosophy, highly intensive approach. So if you have to design a third wave of trials today, what kind of approach would you take?
2: so right now uh, you know i so i don't think we need um, how shall i put randomized trials for the high risk smoldering myeloma patients i think if we have strong phase 2 data at least uh, two different data sets giving us the same message i think that would be a, a reasonable approach for young patients so my my approach is you know we we do have the trial that's ongoing which has a very similar philosophy for you know, compared to what Maribi has said, we're enrolling our younger high-risk myeloma, uh, smoldering myeloma patients on on that trial. And I would be totally on board with that idea for for patients. My issue is for patients who are 70 years and above, who are presenting with high-risk smoldering myeloma, we know that half of those patients are going to progress to active disease, but the other half won't. That's, That's the challenge, you know. What do you intervene with, you know, on, on those patients that's where we're going to need more clarity um i agree with francesca's overall approach you know i think we're going to have i would say three groups you know just like we do nowadays you know one patient group where you're going to treat gently one where you're going to be super aggressive and the other where things will be in between you're not going to be giving them you know consolidation or multi-drug maintenance so i I think that you know it's probably going to be three categories
1: so, yeah. so actually you're making it even more complicated because actually it's already very difficult to identify the high risk. And it's likely you're proposing that we need to have the low high risks, the intermediate high risk and the very high risk.
2: So what I'm, what I'm proposing is we will do away with this smoldering title. We're okay. treating this. It's myeloma. You know, we're going to to call it early myeloma or asymptomatic myeloma, but it will be myeloma. But even today, you know, for our patients, we have transplant ineligible where we treat relatively gently, you know, with easier treatments. Uh, Patients can do very well with easy triple drug regimens like DRD. But then we also have patients who are getting, you know, PIM at induction, transplant consolidation, and then going on to maintenance. And then there are others who are kind of in between. So I think we're we, we going to do away with this smoldering, you know, title. And we're either going to have patients who have precursor disease and they're monitoring, or we're just going to treat uh, them. I think that's, that's where things are headed. So it will get simplified. You know, I, I think in the next five years, um, I can see the smoldering, um, you know, title going away from or, or you know,
1: category going away. Francesca, what is your practical approach today regarding this entity?
3: Well, actually, outside of clinical trial, we don't treat them because it's not allowed. We, as well, participated and had participated in trials, exploring different approaches, more gentle or more aggressive. I totally agree with what Saad mentioned about this different approach that simply means that you have... A patient that has an early myeloma, so we we can call it high-risk moldering, but actually is myeloma at the early stage that is going to progress. And of course, in a young patient, it's easy to give to the patient the whole bunch of therapy with induction, transplant and so on. In an elderly patient, you modulate it according to the fitness as you do in myeloma. And it's extremely important to me also in elderly patients, even the ones that are 70 and more of age, because think about the impact on quality of life of a bone fracture of a renal failure also in these patients, so maybe if they are very elderly you are not uh, you are improving their uh, of course their life expectancy, but also you are preventing the, the occurrence of the crab symptoms that can affect a lot of their quality of life so uh, this this is import, equally important in young and in elderly patients of course, the youngest are the ones for whom you can reach probably the longest the duration of remission with intensive therapy and the prolonged overall survival.
1: Well, uh, this is really fascinating, and I would personally consider that smoldering multiple myeloma is really uh, work in progress. And obviously, uh, we all agree that at the end of the day, our goal is to intervene early in order to eradicate uh, the disease from the beginning and avoid any uh, organ damage. Now we know very well that actually we can achieve this kind of functional cure, uh, especially in the transplant-eligible patient. And that brings me uh, to our second topic for today, which is about the progress that we have seen in the transplant-eligible patient, namely the uh, changes or uh, advances we've seen in induction uh, i believe vrd maybe vtd in uh, european countries and some european countries so bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone have been considered as standard of care regimens validated through randomized phase three trials from Italy, from Spain, from France, and many other groups. Where uh, do you view the future of induction uh, based now on the quadruplet coming uh, DARA-VTD, DARA-VRD, but also I would like to discuss with you uh, in a few minutes uh, the replacement of bortezomib by carfilzomib, And this is a famous KRD or even darA krd So who wants to start?
2: I guess I, I can go first. So yes. uh, I think what, what we've seen um, in the frontline setting for transplant eligible as well as ineligible patients is adding Um, Daratumumab as the anti-C38 monoclonal antibody um, to the existing platforms has improved depth of response, PFS, and uh, in the transplant ineligible setting, even overall survival. So Marie B. Mateos had shared these data with us and it's published now on on the LCUN study. And I suspect that we will see similar trends with with other trials with dara VTD and and, uh, even with DARA-RVD. You know, there is Griffin trial data um, in the phase two randomized setting, but there are two phase three trials looking um, at at that combination as well. And and this will will pan out. But I honestly was was quite surprised with the results of the ECOG trial that was reported, um, you know, which compared BRD to KRD uh, in the frontline setting. Many of us believe that KRD um, is a better regimen for high risk multiple myeloma patients uh, in the frontline setting uh, based on the phase two data that's available. There are three data sets and um, uh, Francesca can probably, you know, uh, share, share her clinical trial experience as well in, in just a bit. But, um, you know, that the ECOG trial truly surprised us. Um, I don't know whether it's the fact that stem cell transplant was deferred in the study, um, uh, whether that had any role to play in it. Um, or or whether it was um, the discontinuation of drug, but at least for the standard risk patients, you know that's that's the population that ECOG targeted. There were no differences in in the primary endpoints, you know, um, of, of PFS. Um, you know, there there was some improvement in depth of response, but that that really surprised me. So you know what what I can share is the PI image, um, dexamethasone with a monoclonal antibody. Um, uh, you know that that quadruplet um, uh, scheme is is probably here to stay. Um, I would still say that you know we we need to explore the role of V versus K in high risk patients, um, and and we don't have a clear answer.
1: But I mean, so you're alluding uh, Sad to the the ECOG trial, which is the endurance uh, trial, uh, which is a phase three randomized trial. 1,000 plus patients reported by Dr. Cheji Kumar as a late-breaking abstract at the last ASCO uh, and showing no difference. I think the PFS, progression-free survival, in the VRDR was 34 months, and it was yeah. 34 months also in the KRDR. Uh, my role as a moderator is to be also fair and defend uh, the evidence, and we must admit that both arms were absolutely balanced. So, of course, the number of cycles 9 versus 12 or the percentage of pr- going to transplant, but they are balanced. So uh, I agree ma- with you. So, so, maybe the story, uh, I mean, the results adding daratumumab to a triplet are quite impressive. And we have the European trial Perseus uh, led by uh, Francesca and other European colleagues, uh, which will come later. But we already know that DARA-VTD, uh, Cassiope trial, uh, DARA-VRD are very powerful. And my personal feeling is that maybe by adding a drug with a totally new mechanism of action, like the anti CD38, is bringing much more added value than but just by switching. Uh, same family of drugs, protesim inhibitors, into first generation to second generation. So here I'll turn to uh, Francesca because you are, since many years now, a strong believer in the triplet KRD using the second generation, uh, very effective, highly potent drug, very useful in myeloma, mycophism. So how did you view this uh, uh, endurance, uh, I would say, negative results uh, from ecog
3: well uh, i was uh, surprised as well uh, as sad because i really did not expect exactly the same results uh it is true that we have uh, if we think uh, about the comparison kmp and VMP again first versus second generation had to add comparison in the past first line and no difference but there there was a clear signal of a probably a higher toxicity with k that here it seems that the toxicities are different but probably not so different to negatively affect the efficacy So it is a bit difficult for me to understand why in the first line setting, first generation is not better than, sorry, uh, second generation is not better than first generation when in the relapse setting, K versus sport comparison, you find, you see this difference. And this is something that uh, honestly, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know if it's because here you use a combination and in the other, In the relapse setting you don't and so using a pi and imid, maybe you don't need the more potent inhibition that you have with k i think these results are clear because you cannot say anything you're right pfs is absolutely equal and uh, the number of patients getting into transplant is similar so it's a bit different the proportion of patients that is uh, stopping therapy and receiving an alternative therapy without specifying if this is transplant or not, if I remember right. But anyway, there is nothing that can probably be responsible of an equal PFS in the two arms with with such a big trial. So I think the conclusion is that from this trial, when you don't use the transplant upfront and when you consider standard risk, the effectiveness in terms of PFS is the same. Uh, I think you are right when you say that using a drug with a different mechanism of action can be can be better. Of course, uh, if you had a fourth drug to a combination, either you have an extreme increase in the toxicity or four, if tolerable, should be better than three. So to me, the real question is, uh, Do we can we use uh, BRD plus monoclonal antibodies in all patients or since we have seen that in high risk, the results are not so uh i mean so strong as we expected here there is the role probably from a second generation proteasome inhibitor in a quadruplet and in a monoclonal antibody we have the results presented from katia weiser that were nice at the ASCO meeting also so i think this is the question we need to to see if in a high risk it's the same or not or if we can have a further benefit
1: But again, my role is to be fair with everybody and to defend all those colleagues who are not able to be here to defend themselves. (laughs) And in the last ASCO, we have seen a very nice meta-analysis looking into all the daratumumab-based combinations, relapse or frontline, showing that uh, the addition of daratumumab is useful in the high-risk population. So just to mention uh, that uh, we have this meta uh, analysis so let me ask uh, both of you because again what i like in these discussions i think i mean randomized trials uh, are lovely we need them to move the field to get approval but also practical uh, approach routine practice is very important so today in your practice sad what is your let's call it gold standard induction regimen in a standard risk transmit the eligible myeloma patient?
2: Um, so we are utilizing uh, DARA-RVD as part of our frontline induction. Okay. Um, again, because, um, you know, our, our center led the Griffin trial and, um, you know, we, when when those initial data were reported, um, the NCCN guidelines had already incorporated uh, DARA-VTD uh, as a category one based on the FDA approval. And we since since we are already using VRD um, in the US, the insurance companies have been forthcoming um, and we have not faced any issues for our standard risk patients, that's our front line.
1: So for, for the sake of the reference, so you're referring to the GRIFFIN trial, which was published recently, pre-published in blood uh, by Dr. Voris and colleagues. Uh, 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 Dr. Francesca, what is your uh, current induction? regimen standard of care oh, uh,
3: I live in Italy and the only induction that is allowed is VtD
1: but we love Italy don't worry you shouldn't be ashamed of it
3: <laughs> no, but uh, well uh, I, I I totally I know that this is suboptimal we have a uh, data that a four-drug combination is better, that VRD is more tolerable. We don't have a randomized VRD versus VTD, but we have strong data on meta-analysis. Unfortunately, the truth is that in many countries, and mine is one, you can use just what is approved, and the approval of the drugs is not fast. So what we are currently using, except for clinical trials, is VTD.
1: And actually here, I would like to mention that in terms of approval, uh, we have daratumumab VTD, bortezomib, salidomide, dexamethasone, which are approved, uh, which is approved only by FDA and EMA. Uh, Approval is slightly different from reimbursement, of course, in different countries. So, well, uh, I think uh, uh, we will uh, close this uh, induction, I would say, chapter. But... uh, uh, I guess the goal of everything we are trying to do as part of the induction is to achieve a very deep, negative, measurable residual disease, because we are all believers in the field that MRD negativity is a good starting point for an improved outcome. So I'd like to hear briefly from both of you uh, what are how are you using MRD today? Uh, is it in routine practice? Is it in clinical research? And where do you view uh, the utility, you know, the how useful is MRD in the near future?
3: Okay, so maybe now I can start now. So, uh, in Clinical research, we use MRD routinely that now is part of all clinical trials. Uh, most of the time with a sequential monitoring uh, in an attempt to get, uh, get gather a lot of data that then we can analyze and we can understand how can the outcome of patients who, for example, maintain a sustained MRD negativity be, be affected and so that we can plan future trials that are uh, MRD-driven when you decide the treatment strategy according to the response. In clinical practice, uh, at least again in my country, this is different because there are reimbursement issues that we have uh, to face every day. So our decision is generally to perform MRD mainly in high-risk patients uh, and uh, in the post-transplant time point uh, where we decide how to modulate and intensify treatment according to response. We used to do this uh, in standard and in high-risk young patients. We are more keen in intensifying or stopping therapy after, let's say, a period of maintenance in standard risk and in high risk at going on intensifying treatment, giving the second transplant, giving maybe a consolidation and so on. So this is what we routinely do because we have to restrict the number of patients for whom we use the, the technique that is not reimbursed.
1: So I'm, I'm curious, Francesca, because you highlighted uh, the high-risk population, let's say deletion 17P patient, and you said you look to MRD negativity uh, more frequently in this population. Is it frequent to achieve MRD negativity in this high-risk subgroup? I mean, I thought that it's quite difficult.
3: No, but we have generally a definition of a high-risk that is a bit broader than just the deletion 17P. Okay. So we know from the data that deletion 17P is difficult that they get MRD negativity, particularly with the regimens that we are using outside of a clinical trial. But there is a general definition of high risk that can be clinical, that can include other abnormalities, for example the gain one cure or, or so there are other abnormalities. And in this population, maybe you can get it and then you can decide if the patient has toxicity, if you really need to intensify more or, or not.
1: Sad. Where, where do you see the future of MRD evaluation in myeloma?
2: So I, I think, uh, you know, currently, um, I, I'm sure, you know, Francesca has um, already stated this, uh, you know, that we have the most information about um, MRD as a prognostic tool uh, but we're not ready to decide a treatment duration on it but that's where things are going to head if you especially for standard risk patients we've gone from this phase of having fixed duration treatment to continuous therapy model and now i think we're going to be coming back to a fixed duration model which will be dictated by sustained MRD negativity uh, for standard risk patients for high-risk patients, I think maintaining MRD negativity is going to be a therapeutic goal, but we are not there yet for that patient population. I think that's the population where, um, you know, uh, MRD will at least now stays as a prognostic tool. But um, for uh, until we develop therapies that can overcome high risk, I don't think that the high-risk patients, we will move away to a fixed-duration treatment schedule. I think many of us will feel uncomfortable taking the foot off the pedal for the high-risk patients. They should be on um, continuous therapy.
1: I mean, uh, when I think about MRD uh, use in clinical practice to guide therapy, uh, I always think now uh, uh, about the so-called master trial by Dr. Costa. And colleagues, it, it's quite amazing because uh, he has used a sort of a super quadruplet regimen, uh, daratumumab and KRD that we discussed a few minutes ago. Uh, would you, how 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 comfortable are you with such an approach outside the clinical trial?
2: Um, I think not outside the clinical trial yet, but um, you know I have to say that there are um, three other efforts beyond the master trial that are asking the same question, but, but with different schemas. So um, there, there's a study that Andreas Jakubowiak from the University of Chicago is doing with, with a very similar kind of a design, the PI, IMED, and anti c 38 monoclonal antibody as part of induction consolidation. And then asking the MRD question, Ola Landgren actually presented some of his data, and our center is doing some something very similar. But all of us are trying to de- define, you know, when to stop. Um, I think that's the trial that we need to do. Um, you know, with uh, the master protocol, yes, we are looking at MRDs at specific time points, but everyone is getting high dose melphalan. So you know, I, I think the right treatment trial um, should be one arm getting the standard of care treatment and the other arm actually developing this response adaptive strategy and seeing which one comes out on top. So I, I think I would love to have a global try where Francesca, you and I, and all of us can, can sit down and design something. Um, I don't think pharma will do this, but I think all of us together can, can sit and design the study. Uh, the master protocol will, you know, it's, it's the first, um, prototype but it can help us in in designing this this dream trial you know the uh, you know and, and the number of uh, sample size we'll need is probably more than 2000 patients but if we put all our minds together we can do this
1: well i mean i, I think your 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 last uh, uh, sentence sounds like music to my ears and hopefully we'll make it because uh, i've never met a, a patient who was telling me Uh, Oh, I love continuous therapy. And MRD, I think, uh, is definitely uh, the right tool to help us to refine the duration of therapy and to identify, uh, in a dynamic fashion, the high-risk patient versus maybe the standard risk where uh, our approaches uh, can move away from this long-standing one-size-fits-all. So... We'll see how the future will be. Okay. Now, let me move to our uh, relapse refractory uh, topic. Uh, Unfortunately, even the patient who achieve MRD negativity in myeloma, in contrast to ALL, for instance, or in contrast to uh, lymphomas, uh, many of these patients will continue to relapse. And this is why... We need more and more relapse options. So maybe uh, both of you you can give us uh, about uh, your the there are plenty of options. We have car T cells, we have drug conjugates, uh, we have bispecific T cell engages. Uh, and when I say car T cells, we have also the NK, the gamma delta. Um, you we have the bispecific car. Uh, t cell. so where wh- what's your favorite option i know sad you made a very nice presentation at asco about the new t-cell engager uh, but maybe francesca you liked something else so francesca wh- wh- what's your favorite one or two new tools these days
3: well leaving uh, the t-cell engager to SAD, i think that is the right person given the the wonderful presentation that he had i think that uh, when we we think about immune therapy and uh, T- i think both t-cell engager and car t-cells of course uh, are the ones that are have the most uh, most striking results uh, it would be nice uh, if we can uh, really understand uh, which patient may benefit from one approach or the other, the advantage of the CAR-T to me is the one shot. If you can give that one shot and get the prolonged remission. If this is the case, probably now we are studying them in a population of patients where, of course, you cannot achieve a prolonged duration of remission. But if this will be the case, moving them early on, I think they they are one of the most appealing treatment strategies at all. Uh, On the other hand, all the other treatments are treatment that you need to, to administer for a prolonged time period. And as you said, There is no patient that wants a prolonged therapy, even if in the relapse setting, they accept it more easily because, of course, the disease relapses several times. But, uh, well, uh, the option of giving a fixed duration of therapy, and maybe with some immunotherapies we can can have this, it's uh, certainly appealing. Most of the other agents, small molecules and so on, everything is prolonged therapy and with a burden of toxicity. So...
1: No, I, I think CAR T cells are definitely very attractive, and the results are really uh, very nice. I mean, we've seen the results of the Karma uh, trial for, by Dr. multi multicenter, large scale, 140 patients, clearly reproducing the results achieved with smaller trials. And this is always good news because sometimes we have some disappointment between the smaller trials results and the larger trials we have the cartitude uh, trial also very exciting but then uh, someone can challenge uh, these cellular therapies by saying oh i'd prefer to have off the shelf uh, antibody t-cell engager maybe a drug conjugate maybe a bi-specific Uh, sad can you give us a summary about your favorite topic these days
2: Sure, absolutely. I, I, you know, first I, w- I would like to start with agreeing with Francesca. I think the major advantage that CAR T cell therapies have is, you know, you're, you just it's a single shot, and then you know, patients can cruise without treatment for 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 quite some time. You know, at least at, at the current follow-up, we're seeing a lot of patients. Unlike the uh, CD nineteen CAR Ts, we are seeing um, uh, sustained, risk, higher degree of sustained responses for CAR Ts. But you're right, you know, I think, you know, the CAR T cell therapy is restricted to uh, centers that can administer cellular therapies. And and you also require um, uh, the bridging therapy and, and disease control um, to collect uh, T cells, manufacture them and deliver them to patients. So um, if someone needs treatment right away, then I think, you know, CAR T's may not be, you know, the, the best um, uh, modality to pick. And this is where Bi-specifics and even ADCs may come into play. And what I'm really liking about the bi-specifics so far, there are three that have been reported, including the map, that uh, data that I just shared at ASCO. Uh, with relapse refractory myeloma, that is PI, IMID, and anti-C38 refractory, we are seeing sustained responses beyond 12 months with um, you know, some of these bi-specifics. Um, so even though, yes, you know, the patients are getting uh, repeated treatment, but if I have an older patient or if I am a hematologist sitting in an, um, a geographic area that does not have access to cellular therapy or transplant center, then, you know, I would go for a bispecific. I, I might feel more comfortable treating my 78-year-old patient with a bispecific rather than CAR-T. So I think that, you know, I think, you know, patient safety profile, with which disease is relapsing all of those uh, things will dictate you know the, the treatments that we pick for our patients it's also quite possible that that for the frontline treatment you know I'm actually moving ahead of where where I should be thinking but you know once the CARTs and bispecifics move to earlier lines there's also possibility of utilizing bispecifics in consolidation and maintenance strategy for patients not, not achieving the best, um, you know, MRD negativity, for example. So I, I think you know there, there's a lot of potential for each of these treatments. I think you know there there will be patients who actually benefit from both as part of achieving MRD negativity as the
1: goal. Well, I think uh, we have a lot of hope. I think uh, for our relapse refractory patient. And I must emphasize, and I think this is really a very important message, that initially we used to think that the first line is really the most important, but now we are able to achieve at the level of the second and even third line very important uh, duration of response and uh, progression-free survival. And putting all this together, we have seen Uh, an amazing increase in the uh, median uh, survival of multiple myeloma patients. So uh, this uh, has been absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, I'd like to thank you both for this uh, uh, lovely uh, discussion. Uh, My take-home message, and I hope you would agree with me from this discussion, is that the field is moving more and more towards early intervention and we didn't mention for instance the sub-analysis of the slim crab criteria slim crab group from Cassiope. Uh, These these are patients who were included in the Cassiope trial presented at ASCO. The induction uh, prior to transplant is moving into quadruplet apparently and this will allow to deepen MRD negativity and if you deepen MRD negativity you will refine and further improve the outcome of the patient. And if patient relapse, actually now we have a huge panel of different options. The usual three families, uh, image, and we should not forget the new kit on the block, cell mode, iberdomide, uh, coming uh, very soon, very uh, nice phase one data. Uh, proteasome inhibitors. And we heard a lot about uh, the uh, impact of carfizumab and how it can fit in the uh, different scenarios. Uh, but we should not forget oral proteasome inhibitors, which can be useful in many elderly patients. We didn't mention them, but uh, they uh, can be very useful. Drugs like exazomib. Uh, and, of course, immune therapy uh, on a larger scale, whether cellular therapy or pharmacological uh, immune therapy through drug conjugate. Balentamab has been really on the podium during ASCO. Uh, we didn't uh, give all details because uh, we didn't have much time for this. Uh, and, of course, uh, the T-cell engages and bite, uh, by specific antibodies. So with this, thank you both. And wherever you are, I wish you uh, a nice day, a nice evening. Uh, and hope to see you soon
3: Thank you
2: Take care Mohammed. take care Francesca take
0: care both of you. you If you have found this podcast useful please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app including Apple and Spotify so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you Follow us on Twitter at VJHemong to join in the conversation and visit vjhimong.com for the latest updates in the field